It was a slow climb to the top of Visenya's hill. As the horses labored upward, the queen leaned back against a plump red cushion. Welcome, everybody. The feast continues. Make way, clear the street. Make way for her grace, the queen. Cersei Lannister. Cersei Six, or Cersei. <laughs> Ann and I have both read Cersei Six and The Lost Lord in preparation for today's episode. These are really good chapters. I was going to ask. I think that's the point of the, the show today. What are your thoughts? We've been talking about recording this episode for a little while. And so I read these chapters a little like a few days ago and then reread them a little bit today before we sat down to record. And ever since I read them for the first time, well, the first time for this reread, I've been so excited to record this episode because I feel like I feel like we're really getting into the end game nitty gritty with these two chapters. Like I think there's a lot of broad questions that we can answer or pretend to answer or try to answer or talk about that really have to do with the end game of where we are so far in A Song of Ice and Fire. And so that's really exciting because it's theorizing in a way that we can't always do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I feel like there's definitely two transition points in each of these chapters. One being young Aegon's meeting of the minds, this kind of council of Elrond and the tent of the commander of the Golden Company and with Cersei making that fateful decision to give the High Sparrow exactly what he wants without quite knowing that that's exactly what he wanted. Man, it's so good. Which of these two, not that we need to rank them against each other, but I know that when we were talking before recording, we didn't speak specifically about it. Which of these two got you most excited to record today? I like the Cersei chapter because I think that it's a big chapter for the faith, which is kind of interesting. But the Lost Lord chapter was my favorite chapter out of these two because I just feel like you can feel the grandeur almost of this moment. And there's a lot of interesting interesting questions that surround Aegon and the Golden Company and John Connington and questions about Varys and all this kind of stuff. So I feel like the meat of what I want to talk about is from the Lost Lord chapter. I didn't know it was going to go well for them at first. I know that we've, we've, we've read the books obviously before, but part of rereading and reading it in this particular order from our reading order of Feast with Dragons is to sort of put ourselves in the combined mindset. So we left Jamie last and then Cersei directly follows him, which was interesting because they had their conversation and then he left with his column and with Ilan Payne's awesome face and eventually made it all the way to Harrenhal. And then, you know, we transplant ourselves back to King's Landing and obviously she's working on the things that were troubling her in the chapter before but this meeting in the tent with the golden company didn't seem like it was going to go that well at first after getting the the long descriptions of these characters and finding out what kind of men they are and finding out what they might have thought about john con beforehand but mm -hmm. it, it turned into sort of one of those king of the north moments almost when he stepped up when young Aegon stepped up and started speaking like i don't know his father <laughs> It did. No, I, I definitely, it is I think it's a, I a good comparison to the King of the North thing because it <laughs> gets you hype in that same way of like, well, then follow me and we'll do this together mm -hmm. kind of thing. And so well, I'm going to tell you about Tyrion's plan. He's, he's so insightful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And just the way that John Connington slash Griff slash whoever reacts to all of that is really interesting. And so we can get into that. I really, really enjoyed having a point of view from him after spending so much time with him, like in the sorrows, mm -hmm. just the whole trek with Tyrion and learning about him. And then now being inside of his mind, it was a very cool thing. I'm glad that George R. R. Martin 
loves John Con so much to have done it. It was a yes. It was very cool. A lot of history. Should we just, should we just skip the Cersei chapter? No, no. <laughs> I do want to say though. So as you're reading these chapters, you were texting me how you felt about it, and the one thing you said about the Cersei chapter was. She was drunk, all caps drunk, <laughs> which I thought was funny. The moment where everything goes well and she's back in the litter with Lady Merriweather and the Hippocrats is popped and poured. I loved what George wrote when he said the litter seemed to have floated through the city. And mm-hmm. at first it was such a troubled expedition. She was bothered by the people. She was bothered by Marjorie. She hadn't quite met Marjorie yet on her way back. And I just thought it was interesting how he wove that part of her character so seamlessly into the environment it was pretty cool yeah it was good i it's fun to kind of read about them sitting there gossiping about everything that's been happening and to watch cersei kind of try to get more information by listening to them kind of go on and on about everything that's happening in marjorie's court and how lively and amazing it is and the men that are coming in and out and my favorite part when they talk about how Pycelle is a frequent visitor and and Cersei's reaction to that. And so I just love this like gossip session that we get, which is very productive um, from Cersei's point of view to only continue to fuel kind of how she's been feeling about the Tyrells. Yeah, she has such an elaborate plan. If you're reading along with this grade, if you're not, the show doesn't quite represent it at, at much of its extremes because we don't have enough time to have complete lines with Lita Heaty reading off all of George's exposition, but she believes at some point in the chapter, I wanted to ask if you actually thought that she believed this or if she was just thinking, you know, she thinks she has those italicized moments that are sometimes horribly savage. Mm-hmm. I, do you think that she really believes that Sansa and Tyrion met up and now they're hanging out in High Garden behind a wall of roses? I feel like there's no way she can actually believe that. Because she interacts with the Tyrells on a regular basis. She, she puts Tommen in their company on a regular basis. And she really believed that, knowing how much she hates Tyrion and Sansa and the fact that she believes because of the coin, but also because of it's a convenient thing to hate that the Tyrells were responsible for Joffrey's death. I don't know. That's pretty intense. I feel like she just likes to rile herself up a little bit, you know, and just kind of start mm-hmm. going down this thread of... Because I, you know, she does have a little bit of a legitimate reason to be on, a good on watch and, and wary of yeah what the Tyrells are doing, but I think that she just kind of likes to hype herself up and kind of let that all spiral. I don't know. We just recorded rewatch the throne, and it comes out on Wednesday. The episode for Kiss by Fire from season three, where Tywin sits down with Cersei and Tyrion where Cersei's giving Tyrion that silent treatment for the whole time and just staring at him mm-hmm. and is so, so happy because she knows the news that they're going to marry Sansa off to him. In this chapter, she she gives Tywin that reference and I thought, again, it was kind of advantageous timing for us because she she remembers the plan that they had of marrying Sansa to Willis or in the show, Sansa to Loras and how her father so awesomely broke it all up but she's like, look what I did, father. In just one little conversation, I've gotten our debt with the faith completely swept away. I found a way to have these sparrows out of my way when I'm traveling through the city. It's just perfect. That was my favorite moment of this chapter because she is so pleased with herself and she is, you can just like kind of see her 
with that sheepish grin of like, I am so good at my job. I rock. I'm better than my dad. And she, like you're saying, she's saying even her Lord Father could not have done better. While we understand or can debate about whether or not this probably is her biggest mistake as Queen Regent. So on the way to the Sept of Baylor, she's riding with Lady Meriwether in her litter, and she's obsessed with the fact or with the idea of whether or not Marjorie has lost her maidenhead, whether she actually slept with Rinley or not. We get that exchange where Lady Meriwether was nearby and uh, has an account, and George just goes in. He goes in. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> she's basically, she's like, mm, I'm not sure if Marjorie's still a maiden, but Renly was definitely into it. Oh, yeah. For it's sure. Funny. For some reason. Yeah. I think Sir, Sir Loris had her carried up the steps himself. Hmm. We just don't know. <laughs> some may say that the marriage was never consummated, that Renly had drunk too much wine at the wedding fish, but I promise you, the bit between his legs was anything but wary when I last saw it. <laughs> As they're kind of gossiping about all of this, they run into... Or they start to see all the different sparrows kind of crowding in King's Landing. And they start talking about the High Septons and how you distinguish one High Septon from the other and the current High Septon. And basically, we learn, if we didn't already understand Cersei's kind of opinion about the High Septon himself and what is happening in King's Landing with all of them. And one of the biggest points of her grievances is the fact that the blessing is being withheld from Tommen. And so she's just is kind of going off on all these different things about the faith, basically, before they actually get into the point where they have to start walking as they're on their way to the to the sept. Over the course of A Feast for Crows, the sparrows, not only in Cersei's chapters, but also nearby Brienne, sort of represent this oncoming storm. And I saw it as sort of the, especially with the pile of bones around the statue, just kind of a George's figurative representation of the what's the word I'm thinking of after the war what happened because of it Mm -hmm. with these guys coming out of the woodwork these men and women who have been hurt by the fact that all of these families were warring against each other we had three books where we didn't think too much about the small folk but this is uh what happens Mm -hmm. you know they're they're coming up out of the woodwork and uh decorating the city and so she has to actually go through it which I thought was a pretty beautiful way she was able to ignore it for so long, but now as she goes to visit the High Septon for what we know is something that happens when a new king is crowned, getting the blessing for the High Septon, it's kind of like a regular part of the job. But as she does it, she has to face what's happening. She mm-hmm. has to face the fact that this is what happened. And I like how they're described as a sullen sea of humanity, brown and ragged and unwashed, which I think is such a stark contrast between Cersei's whole life as it's meant to be and yeah to have her kind of actually go through that and see that and participate more so than she normally would and to like see the bones at the statue that make her really uncomfortable and kind of facing some of these different things only put her more on edge as she goes into this conversation uh, with the high septon she's been able to ignore it before Mm -hmm. but like i said now she's on work duty and they're there and to add insult to injury, they're in contrast of the beautiful masonry that they're sitting upon and they're unwashed. And before they get there, they make the jokes about, I, I forget who said it. I think it was uh, Lady May- Meriwether was talking about, she was she was just, just normal gossip. And so she was like, best keep it to yourself. The hill is thick with sparrows. And we all know how they abhor wickedness. 
And she was like, oh, I've heard they abhor soap and water too, your grace. Mm-hmm. And Cersei's like, perhaps too much prayer robs a man of his sense of smell. I shall be sure to ask his high holiness. So it's like a joke until mm-hmm. they actually see them. And then when she realizes after they have to leave the litter and they're they're obviously giving them aggression because they explain why the bones are there and Cersei realizes I've only got a few members of the Kingsguard here. She surrounded herself by her crew. She's got a kettle black outside. She's got her informant on the inside. Marin Trant, which needs no introduction, is outside. None of these people are exactly capable, but for the purpose they serve for her, it worked until she really needed something else. That's why she had to just go on with it. No, mm-hmm. don't fight here. Don't do anything crazy. We don't want another riot. But it was, I think it was less about a riot, more about the fact that they could definitely just lose right now. Yeah. Not paying attention to it. And then now we can lose. Yeah. I do like, and this is just like a very Cersei characteristic, but you're talking about them making light of kind of everything that's happening with the faith and poking fun at the sparrows and the high septon and how they talk about distinguishing them as the fat one and the one before the fat one and that kind of stuff. And and it's so greatly contrasted with the power that we start to see them gain. And it also is so interesting because there's a lot of historical context that kind of comes up in the conversation that she has with the high sept with the high septon. Um, when she's in the the sept about history and kind of as she overturns these laws and things like that. It's it's really interesting because you just really see her total disregard for history and historical lessons and for really paying attention to anything around her in a political way at all. And I feel like it really comes to head at the end of this chapter when she makes this decision to basically arm them while also being faced with like these huge historical significance and these huge signs kind of in front of her of how she should be handling these situations. She said when they were trying to get through the crowd that, you know, it's a shame that they were walking through and she felt bad because her father would have just rode through them. And I don't know if Tywin would have not taken them seriously knowing what role they've had in the past. But I think that that's part of the problem here. Obviously, when she gives them the ability to take up arms again. She's not thinking about what they're capable of, maybe because it's the faith and throughout her life, it's always been the fat one or that one that would take the crown and the people that surrounded them weren't on their hands and knees washing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And no one wears shoes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's like easy to... It's easy easy to ignore them or to not take them seriously because they're a religious institution. And I think it's reflected pretty well in the TV show. And uh, I I think it's more obvious in the books how dangerous the High Sparrow really is. Because while you're not taking him seriously, the the level of which he's playing the game is ridiculous. Because Mm -hmm. not only did he get this thing that he wanted, but he's also got all of those people outside the Sept of Baylor. No one can do anything about it. He's got people that have been working there for a long time that know Cersei that have been paid off and that have not been the kind of men that would actually be so pious just on their knees washing with no shoes scrubbing and it's kind of like how did this happen we've only met him a few times and now all of a sudden he's gone this far it feels like it happens so fast Mm and both and the book and the show like i feel like all of a sudden they're these background characters and then all of a sudden Cersei's walking through a sea of them. We have a quote from the book that's a bit of history that is just another bit of evidence before Cersei meets with the High Septon that is just a mark that she doesn't really take what they're doing 
that seriously. During the reign of King Baylor the Blessed, a simple stonemason was chosen as High Septon. He worked stone so beautifully that Baylor decided he was a smith reborn in mortal flesh. That man, or the man could neither read nor write nor recall the words of the simplest prayers. Some still claimed that Baylor's hand had the man poisoned to spare the realm embarrassment. After that one died, an eight-year-old boy was elevated once more at King Baylor's urging. The boy worked miracles, his grace declared, though even his little healing hands could not save Baylor during his final fast. They have a little laugh. Lady Mayweather's like, oh, just eight. Perhaps my son could be high Septon. He's almost seven. And yeah. Cersei's like, does he pray a lot? <laughs> oh, he prefers to play with swords. Oh, a real boy then. Can he name, name all seven gods? I think so. Oh, I shall have him to take him under consideration. Which is just like so funny. And I just all I can think about is Magor's like 300 year old law to unarm them. And mm-hmm. it's like she's paying attention to some parts in history, but she's not paying attention to somebody like this who basically spent their reign fighting the faith, mil- faith militant and felt like it was so important to get rid of them in a armed way. You know, so it's like paying attention to the parts of history that are kind of silly and kind of funny and easy to make fun of without thinking about the parts of history that actually mean anything or like bear weight and significance in the situation. I don't really understand it. Because she doesn't meet a small crowd and there are piles of bones, whether or not they kill those. They didn't kill those people. It's not up to them, but it's still the vibe that they're surrounding themselves with. Yeah. And so, like you said, yeah, and that she looks at the funny stuff and how it suits their need where, you know, we can't really take these people seriously because King Baylor, he, 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 some guy was such a good Mason that he was like, well, that's. That's the that's the Smith reborn in mortal flesh. So of course he should be high septon. He can't read, he can't write, but he could be the high septon. And so maybe then it wasn't much of a threat. But with all this going on, with her father dying like he did, and with Joffrey dying like he did, I don't know. I just feel like it was painfully obvious almost. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if what she was asking for. I'd, I'd, I'd this is something we need to ask George R. R. Martin about because I know that getting the the blessing for Tommen is a big deal. But like you said, uh, someone spent a lot of time working to get this law established. And then over time, the faith had to, I'm sure, evolve out of that mindset where it was part of how they got things done. And then it eventually became, I guess, the shadow of what it is today, rife with corruption. But clearly this guy and these people, after the war and after the presence in the capital, after so much of the land has been savaged and so many people have been brutally murdered in the way they have been, you know, are, are rising up in a way that hasn't been necessary in a long time. Right. So as she makes through this crowd and she enters into the actual sept alone, she ends up having to go in alone without any backup, basically. I think that she kind of starts to maybe see a change a little bit, but that doesn't really deter her in her mission. She comes in and, and she finds some of the other septons who are usually fawning over her and usually sucking up to her and like really paying a lot of attention to her kind of ignore her and greet her not really at all like while they're scrubbing the floors and and not really treating her with the respect that she thinks she deserves and so I feel like this is the point where she can kind of start to feel the tide shifting if she wasn't already thinking about that outside which we know that she wasn't and the high sparrow is open enough to burn her with an Ed Stark reference mm-hmm. right out the gate <laughs> night, night, she, she talks about oh, your, your men are are soiling 
the set. She starts with the with the kind of a more shallow reason of why they should get the hell out of there. She's like, "There's night soil all over the place, and you know what's going on here." He goes, "Night soil can be washed away more easily than blood, Your Grace. If the plaza was befouled, it was befouled by the execution that was done here." Yeah, throwing it right in her face, like right <laughs> off the like, bat. How dare she bring up? How dare you bring up Ned Stark in my presence? But I like that she explained it away and was like, "Joffrey was young and upset, and it shouldn't have happened." Right. So there's that. So that's good, at least. At least, she, at least she understands that. But they kind of go on to talk about how the sparrows have nowhere to go. As we were talking about, the war has completely destroyed their lands, their home, their villages. The hound, He talks about the hound who's like just Just taking the blame for out. everything. Yeah. <laughs> He's just like, Wildly now, honestly. I mean, the, <laughs> the amount of times we've had to hear about what went down at Salt Pan so far, it's like, man, that was some brutal shit. I know. It's kind of... It's everywhere. And and so they're upset. They're like, well, how come nobody is defending us or paying attention to us or taking care of us? Because look at kind of what we're having to deal with. So, of course, he's not going to. He's he, he's talking about how the hour is not yet ripe is what he says for blessing Tommen. But you have to see that the Septon, he, he could make that decision. Basically, he oh, just yeah. won't. He's not, not going to. Yeah. He hasn't gotten what he wants yet. Yeah. He hasn't gotten what he wants. And he kind of is laying that all out, all out for her. and. They're also in debt and all this kind of stuff. So they have the the seven pointed star painted on their foreheads, and they're just waiting to get that go ahead to start carving it in people's faces. Mm-hmm. They're just waiting for it. King Tommen will forgive the sparrows too once they have returned to their homes. And he's thinking, yeah, that's what we're thinking of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I am curious to hear what your thoughts about what Cersei should or shouldn't have done in this situation. You know, as we kind of talked about, do we think that this is a huge mistake that she made because we basically know what ends up happening? Do you think that she basically did what she needed to do, that something like getting them off her back and not having debt anymore is important enough and having the blessing on Tommen is important enough? Do you find any sort of reason behind what she did and, and if she kind of did the right thing or I don't know. I think that she was fooled in a pretty awesome way. George R. R. Martin fooled a lot of us too. There's a, a level of gamesmanship that we see in certain characters and sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not. But I feel the further I went along this chapter and I saw and I thought of his face and I, I saw and I heard the things he was saying to her, I was just thinking, man, this was a, it kind of reminded me of just, not exactly, but one of the latter chapters, when the lone fray was inching closely toward his demise, that's kind of how I felt, inching closely toward understanding how dangerous this guy is. It was just a, a dark level of gamesmanship inside of a holy house mm-hmm. with all, all of these people outside that were armed with crude weapons and and standing around piles of bones that they brought from the places that they found them to prove a point. I was like, there's just a lot of of anger and aggression here. You think of just that one story from the salt pans that's got to be happening all over the place. We've seen some of it ourselves and we can just fill in the cracks with the rest. So I I can't really blame her because in her lifetime, they've had the kind of people in that house. So how should this be any different? Right. And and like I said, I don't really understand fully the importance of the faith's blessing on Tommen right now, especially with things going so well with Marjorie. I feel like she could have just maybe put more faith in the Tyrell relationship like Tywin was trying to do with Lady Olena, but her pride's getting in the way. So it's a difficult balance of just she wants the people that are in charge to be the people that surround her litter and that's it. But what Tywin realized was that 
and, and like the Golden Company realizes with with their conquest, you know, you have to partner up with with Fagon if you need to if you want to do something that matters. And Illyrio knew that, and a lot of other characters understand that, but she just refuses to make a lot of those sacrifices in the name of well, I don't want that. Mm-hmm. I don't like them, and I I deserve better. And so the the strength there is admirable, you know, no matter what her motivations are some some may say they're bad some may not care at all it's just i guess a long way to answer your question is i don't think that she just looked at all the evidence but i don't blame her for not fearing this guy so much yeah i think that you're right i mean i'm kind of in that same boat um and i i can't i think that what's so great about a reread is that you can't help but feel biased Mm-hmm. Um, to to what we know and understand, and so I'm trying really hard not to feel biased while right. we talk about this because it's so easy to, as we've been saying, basically sit here and go, "Well, what the heck are you doing? You can see everything plainly happening in front of you right now. Can you not pay attention to what actually matters?" But like you said, Tom and getting a blessing may actually matter the most in in this situation, and maybe that's how she thinks she can kind of keep a hold on the common people, and if if maybe not. Tom and not being able to be blessed by this, then no, no one's going to believe that he has any real or true power. And so, you know, I can see see the importance of that. But I just feel like arming the people who are already threatening you. They're standing see, by a bunch of bones. It just, seems like a bad idea. Yeah. They're not as controllable as, you know, it, it's it's less less to do with politics because there's only one entrance there. You know, the entrance is the High Septon and what he says is is what they do there's less likelihood of turning these men of faith because they've lost everything they have nothing to gain really other Mm -hmm. than standing together and fighting back in a very aggressive way depending on what their leader wants them to have and he's so good yeah he's so good he's really really good and we learn further in the reading you know just how good he gets Mm -hmm. and just how excellently he turns this on on cersei so like you said rereading it is interesting because I know that we're biased, but I, I think it's a fun exercise to really look into the text and try to figure out what George is trying to tell us as we go along. And um, you can really pick up on some cool stuff. Well, and at this point, Cersei really thinks that they're just going to go after Stannis and the Red God and, and those people who are not believing in the Seven. And that so somebody who has the blessing doesn't have to worry about that because they're actually true and faithful. They're just versus these other large groups of people who are completely going off the rails and worshiping different entities. Yeah, but it was kind of a dead giveaway when she's standing out there in front of the statue and giving sort of a, a miniature stump speech to all of the sparrows. You know, she can say the pious things that she liked. They weren't buying a second of it. Yeah. Yeah. So how important is it that you say that you love the seven and that you want to see justice. I don't know. This is the High Sparrow's plan. He says, the realm is full of kings. For the faith to exalt one above the rest, we must be certain. 300 years ago, when Aegon the Dragon landed beneath this very hill, the High Septon locked himself within the starry sept of Old Town. He prayed for seven days and seven nights, taking no nourishment but bread and water. He's telling Cersei that he's going to fast, stay indoors for seven days, seven nights, or for as long as it needs to be. That's the last thing that she wants is more time. She came here to get it solved. And who knows even at the end of that point if Tommen will get the blessing. Mm-hmm. Basically, he's waiting for Cersei to kind of offer up some sort of help, I think, because all of this stuff is happening and nobody's defending them and no one's doing anything about it. And so 
Cersei basically says, well, Tommen will defend, he'll, he'll defend you. You give him his blessing and whatever you need, he'll take care of it. Yeah, all of those bones that are outside, we can fix all of that. We'll, we'll fix everything. All your problems. I know that we owe you a debt. We'll fix all of this if you need it. But you got to give Tom and your blessing. Mm-hmm. It's such a perfect little situation that he made because he's got all of the sparrows out there and they have weapons. And they and, and obviously there's um, evidence of what happened. It's, it's, it's more impactful when you actually see the bones there. And so she can't she can't really shrug it off because it's there. It's right there. And he's like, well, how can I say, how can I bless this king when all of these bad things are happening? You know, we're supposed to have these bad things fixed. And so she immediately is, there's an italic line here where she goes, I will pretend you did not mention lions. Mm -hmm. She's talking about all the wolves and lions that, that are attacking, you know, good people. And she shrugs it off by saying the realm is at war. We're busy fighting people because the realm is at war. But look outside. Look right outside your door. Your your sparrows all have clubs and axes. Why don't they defend themselves? I think that was a very smart and interesting thing he did was basically. So good. Because he's like, well, why, are you going to bring a knight to walk every road with everybody who's a beggar? Will you guard every single one of our everything, like all of our people? It's, like, it's, a, it's a bodies issue. And nobody has any buddy to spare because in, in, they're at war. And so, yeah, it's basically her idea. He makes it seem like it's her idea to arm them. And he's like, well, you know, we can't do that. There's laws against that. You know, we laid down our swords. King Magor's laws prohibit it. Mm-hmm. So she's like, Tommen is king now, not Magor. Why, uh, why does she care that Magor the Cruel had decreed 300 years ago? Instead of taking the swords out of the hands of the faithful, he should have used them for his own ends. So why not do that ourselves? So why not do that ourselves? I've got this bright idea. She actually is trying to not seem so excited about the idea mm-hmm. in front of him. That's why it seems so dark to me because he's just so calm and he's got soap on his knees and he's probably holding a dripping sponge. And, and he's, he's just... so grateful mm-hmm. that it's been answers to prayers and this is what they've always wanted. And it even says, yeah, it, there's even a line that says Cersei took care not to seem too eager. The giveaway for me though, which I, I think I wrote down in my notes, because even after all of his piousness and all the reasons why they need to feed people and why they need that gold, Cersei mentions, just to test her luck a little bit, 900,600, or what was it? Well, I, the... It's almost a million. Were, yeah, it's a, lot of, it's a lot of golden dragons. She names off a number that the, the crown owes to the faith, and he gives her the exact number and says, gold that could feed the hungry and rebuild a thousand seps. And then she asks, is it the gold you want or do you want these dusty laws of Magor set aside? And that's just part of haggling where you know you got someone. But I feel like after all that's been said, maybe you can't get this guy. Maybe they really need almost a million golden dragons or at least the promise that it would come in at some kind of steady rate, you know, to to do the things that they'd like to do to help the poor. They're pious people, after all. That's the whole point. They've sold the crystal crown. They've sold all the rings. They've sold all of the possessions of this of this order. They need that money, right? But I thought this was here, this was the giveaway for me with the High Septon, where uh, if I was reading the books for the first time, I would have started really, really being paranoid at this guy. He was like, eh, all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like the show money. adaptation did so well with Jonathan, Jonathan Price playing the high sparrow because 
he really captured this very humble, I always say barefoot because it annoys me in a good way. <laughs> I know that's how it's supposed to be, but like when the show's on, I can't look at anything else. But he just, he does such a great job of kind of portraying this like meekness when he in reality is playing the game very well. And so I feel like they adapted his demeanor and just the air about him, even with just kind of like the way he talks, and like the cadence, I feel like it's done really, really well. And so I just have this picture of him throughout this entire conversation, which I know that we can't say that for every single character. His cold eyes. Yeah. Like, and he, he just like has this kind of like, not sheepish, but like, Never mind. I don't know what I'm saying. You just <laughs> <laughs> I get it. No, I get it. It's 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 kind of spooky when you really think about it. I think the only time we really got a moment of of true humility out of him was when he knew that he had lost and the sept was exploding. Yeah, I think so. Just for a small second. So I think that he really just like encapsulates his character very well. I was worried when this happened. And when I when I read it, I I knew what was to come of it, but I just was like, man, this was this was so easy. And like we said earlier in the discussion, she was so pleased with herself and the Hippocrats gets poured. It's so sweet, it's so savory. The litter is floating back across the city. And then let's just bring everything back down again. Marjorie's there with all of her friends, her cousins, admirers, Loris Tyrell hanging out and they they're just have having flowers great... in their hair yeah. they've been picking flowers she starts talking about how marjorie just she's always doing something whether she's riding in, in boats or whether she's uh going and shopping and buying people food and giving little small little speeches marjorie's always up to something whenever i read about marjorie i just always feel like there's this like air of everything is just like sunshine and rainbows and she's kind of like floating along with all of these people skipping around behind her you know, running through different fields and things like that. Hawking. Kinda, yeah, I get that that picture in my mind. And Cersei hates it. Oh, gosh, she hates it. Hates it, hates it. Keep in mind, she keeps sending men to try to woo Marjorie. Mm-hmm. I don't know why she thought Osney Kettleblack would do the job, though. <laughs> yeah. You know? But I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean. She had to try. She did. So Marjorie does another thing that Cersei hates so much is basically invites her along with them. You should come with us. You should. Oh, we yeah. would have such a great time oh, together. Yeah. It would be so amazing, basically. And she's like, I don't have time to pick flowers. I have a kingdom to rule. And Marjorie, she wants to help, basically. She's like, why? You know, let me kind of lift that burden from you. And But it's what she wants and it's what she needs to be doing. Um, She's already kind of got a hook in Tommen and this is kind of like the next step. She won't let Tommen go with her out on any of her outings. She doesn't want to go with her. Definitely so. not. Oh, God. Cersei and, and Marjorie hawking and having little conversations. I would love it. Flowers in their hair. I mean, yeah. So so would I. I think that they would all have a good time. Uh, what I thought you were going to say earlier when I laughed I, is when uh, she's like, I've got a kingdom to rule. And she's like, oh, I thought you had. What about the other six? It's oh, like, yeah. Why did <laughs> yeah. you? I, I think that Marjorie knew that Only Cersei had been day grace. drinking. <laughs> I think that she knew she'd been day drinking, and that's why she just took a couple risks. Yeah, that's funny. I didn't catch that. Why can't I help you? That's why would you say that? You know, she hates your guts, mm-hmm. but you still are. You're. I don't know. It was just. I, I really like Marjorie Tyrell. Like, I love she, her. She's playing so hard. Well, and once again, we have somebody like Marjorie and like the Faith who are playing up their perceived what everyone perceives them as. You know, Marjorie is just continuing to play up this fairy tale floating 
princess type of thing to to Cersei and while also using that in her favor without Cersei really understanding and the faith kind of playing up there very humble and dirty and meekness while also plotting intensely and so there's this like quick snap judgment that's made without kind of understanding what's happening behind the scenes and neither of them are shadowing their distaste for each other which is not polished on either of their hands so we'll see what comes of it we shall see we shall see that was the uh that was the way this chapter ended she's trying to warn marjorie from the woods she's like you know you go out in the woods robert used to go hunt out in the woods all the time that's when i used to hang out with jamie she's thinking <laughs> golden days and silver nights i used to love when robert left actually i used to hate when robert left because i was so scared that he'd be hurt and then look what happened to him it's such a dangerous place. You don't mm-hmm. want to go out there and get hurt. Cersei's brother protected her mm-hmm. just as well. Go and hunt. Go and hunt. But the chapter ends when um, Lady, Lady Marjorie's asking if uh, she could share in the jest because Cersei's laughing at uh, what Tana had told her about Loras. And like it's just something that she can't stop thinking of just in case it's all happening. And uh, Cersei's like, you will. Or no, she asked if she could stare in the jest, and she goes, you will. I promise you, you will. (laughs) I do. I love Cersei and Marjorie's banter back and forth. It's just so steely. It is really good. Yeah. High five to both of these queens. And high five to Cersei Lannister for doing a great job. Yeah, she got the, I mean, to be honest, that was pretty cool to get almost a million golden dragons removed from their debt, but you got to ask yourself, Cersei, like, but- At what cost? At what cost, Yes. (laughs) At what cost? <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Support for today's show comes from War Dragons, a mobile real-time strategy game where players directly control dragons to attack enemy bases. With over 150 different dragons to collect, each one possessing different attack styles, abilities, and classes, players can work to create a powerful army and dominate the battlefield. Plus, you can join or create guilds to launch co-op attacks and co-op defense. Zach, I know you've been all over this. Give us your thoughts. Okay, so my my first concern, I wanted to know with over 150 dragons, I wanted to know what kind of dragons there were. I wanted to know if they had dragons with four legs that are more magisterial, that we trust more, that normally have smart things to say, or if there was more like a, a Drogon-style two-legged two-winged dragon you mm-hmm. know what i'm saying mm-hmm. and I'm, ha- I'm happy to report that i have discovered i've discovered that we have all bases covered we have the more majestic and we have the more savage <laughs> and they're all in majestic and savage colors and that's really all you need to know and you can check out all these dragons for yourself and you can also join or create your own guilds But best of all, there's a new game feature called Atlas that just launched. Atlas is a new, fully 3D, persistent world where players can forge alliances with other teams and conquer land from those that they deem enemies. You can work with your teammates to build up dragon-led armies. You can fight for new land and secure lucrative rewards. Sound familiar? All while bolstering strongholds to strengthen your positions. Just go to wardragons.com slash owns via your phone or tablet device to download the game. That's wardragons.com slash owns on your phone or tablet. We don't really have an awesome transition. I no, have one. We're just excited to talk about <laughs> at the what next cost chapter. because the Golden Company are mercenaries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
There you go. What are they being promised? The spoils of Westeros? Well, it's very exciting because we finally actually meet the Golden Company. So cool. After hearing about them and kind of getting little snippets, we actually finally get to spend time with them. So what are your initial thoughts? I thought it was really interesting to get the perspective of the Golden Company from John Connington's perspective because I feel like he has approached all of this. We we learned in this chapter that he has this like very intense sort of guilt, I guess. And he's kind of trying to figure out if what he's doing is the right thing and if his actions will pay off in the end. And I, I kind of that translates to this this guilt, I think, that he has a little bit. And he has a history with these guys, with a lot of these guys, and maybe not specifically everybody he meets, but there's a long history there. And he he left their presence under circumstances to kind of push this Aegon thing along. Um, and so for him to kind of go back now and to kind of look at everything through his lens, I think is really interesting and I really like. No, definitely. It was such a such a cool tale and it, it just rounds out all of the mystery of these characters as you're moving forward in Dance of Dragons. We still don't know about Septa Lamore, but we know that Halden Halfmaester was also a member and it makes a lot of sense how this all happened. And it makes a lot of sense that someone like Illyrio and someone like Varys would be behind it because they're guys that have access to a lot of money. And these are guys that not only have interest in the country that they've been bastardized from in a lot of ways, but also in money, mm-hmm. you know? So it, it just it was the perfect situation. These men, there's 10,000 of them. It's it's easy to to know what they want. And out of all the planning that Illyrio and Varys have done with all the variables that have constantly been dug up and buried again and are made fun of basically for this whole chapter, um, this is the one thing that was always sort of resolute. And I thought it was interesting how mercenaries are disregarding this chapter as someone that you can't trust, but yet the planning has basically gone awry on the other half because of how real Danny is, which yeah. I thought was so cool. It's mm-hmm. like, but these guys were there the whole time. I think it's kind of funny that from both a reader's perspective and also from like the Golden Company's perspective and everybody's perspective, the characters as well, that Danny has kind of like messed up everybody's plans. Because I think at a re- as a reader at this point, we're like so ready for her to move and for her to get out of the way and for her to start like actually progressing towards Westeros and doing something. And so to read that the same thing is kind of happening for these people is kind of funny because it's like a nod to you as a reader as well. It's like, you're not crazy. It's taking forever. But Connington knows that Tyrion has disappeared and he knows that Tyrion knows the true identity of young Griff and he has assumed much I'm sure that they haven't spoken out loud about and so that coupled with the fact that the Golden Company are three miles south of Volantis and he's gotten grayscale and who knows I'm just mad about everything the Dragon Queen burned our plan to ash we have uh, what was I gonna say? Oh, it was such a good thing. Uh, they're also talking oh about how man. the seven kingdoms had never been more ripe for conquest. Conquest, Tywin is dead, Cersei is the leader, and they're talking about how Dorne is definitely gonna come to their aid. And Danny is still just and Danny's kind of a wild card, yeah, 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 yeah. No, he's definitely reached the point now. I think that Tyrion disappearing had a lot to do with it, and obviously the fact that they were nearly there to to start with everything it's the timing was there but i think just the manner and where he's just like i have no fucks anymore Mm -hmm. this guy is going to be the prince 
he is the prince. He's going to be the king. Well, whatever the plan is, he's like Illyrio has. It's just not gone well. So he's. I've danced to the fat man's pipes for years. What has it availed us? I know you don't want us to reveal anyone and maybe not move too fast and be too cautious. But I think now it's time to throw caution to the wind and and move forward. Mm-hmm. Well, he said he said it was not the prudent course. Basically, what ends up happening at the end of end of the chapter. But he was tired of prudence, sick of secrets, weary of waiting, and that just ready for something to happen because they've been and we kind of get some of this understanding the the backstory a little bit there's just been so much that has gone into getting to Aegon to this point and they bring up as we're talking about Illyrio's plan not really going the way that they thought it was supposed to go and just kind of like all these things like well they might as well just start moving and, and get something going because we've got no time to waste it hasn't worked you know mm-hmm. what I mean Daenerys has truly been a wild card and and Viserys didn't work out. Khal Drogo was killed and his Kalasar split and they're part of the variables that are happening now. And and like you said before, they don't really understand what Daenerys is doing. But rather than me seeing it as and I know a lot of viewers of the show thought the same thing when they were like, what's going on with Daenerys? How come she's just in a different city that looks the same and they're doing the same thing, talking about the same problems? But it, as a character, it's so interesting that she's been able to disrupt all of these grand plans while actually trying to seriously help people. Mm-hmm. Even at her, it's not good for her, essentially. I mean, air quotes. Is she going back to Westeros and taking it with fire and blood? You know, the best route for her was that the best thing to do, maybe. Or, or in this situation, would it have been better for them to wait a little less so they could have maybe headed off some of these variables? I don't know, but that's what he's going through. I just thought it was cool for Daenerys to get consistently shouted out in this chapter, but in a very strong way. Yeah. When she was supposed to be nothing. It turns out that she's so much more than nothing. She's she's doing such good or at least trying, which I think is the most important thing for her personally as a character. Maybe we can't say the same for how it's affecting the people, but we know because we're in her head for these chapters that she really is trying to do the right thing. Even when she knows that she could try to take Westeros back, she's trying to do the right thing. And on top of that, you've got Yunkai, you've got all of the the three companies that they've hired, you've got the Dothraki potentially, and you have the potential of the Volantine fleet to come up as well because what she's disrupted there in Slaver's Bay is more than a small thing. You know what I mean? Like that, that slave trade has disrupted a big part of their industry and for many reasons, many people want it to stop. So it's just layers of why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? It's not very good for your plan or for other people's plans. And it's more likely to create more enemies for you than just the ones you'd have in Westeros. More likely for you to get killed. And the only answer to that is, well, I think it's the right thing to do. Right. She feels like it's her obligation and duty. Well, knowing all of this and and knowing how things have all kind of shaked out, does that change your opinion on what you think of someone like Illyrio, who seems to be pulling the strings all along? but actually really isn't. Definitely. It's just the same as we've said in our show reviews where now Littlefinger is dead and well, so there, there's the end of that. Maybe he's not the other side of the coin. And then with Varys, you know, the way he's speaking to Melisandre and the future that she knows about him and the kinds of characters that surround him now and the kind of scale that they take instead of him. And we've seen his feet for God's sake. So a lot of that mystery has gone as well. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's less simpering and a little bit more jogging. It's just so much of the mystery has been 
peeled away in a very long and patient way and not in a way that really exposes them and makes them look too bad. It just makes them look real to us. Right. And I thought that was such a an awesome thing. I, I mean, that's a big word, a brilliant thing. A, 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 you know, it's a cool thing that George R. R. Martin did because for so many years I was in, I was so mystified by these guys and especially Illyrio. When you get his meeting with Tyrion, it's just so mysterious and all that he has and all he knows and how much he influences. But we see here that it's just, you know, a plan after plan after plan. And they were just trying to get to a very ripe nation, which is Westeros. Well, and they were kind of banking and playing on kids, someone like mm-hmm. Danny and someone like Fagon, as he makes the decision to kind of put himself at the forefront here at the end of the chapter. They're building all of this stuff off of kids whose personalities they don't understand yet, you know? And, and so it's kind mm-hmm. of like a changing of the guard as we've seen and as we've been discussing as these players like Danny kind of make her own decisions and start changing the tides and, and, and moving things knowingly and unknowingly in the way that she wants them to go. And so lots of conversation about if that's the right thing or not here in this chapter. But John Connington is not one of those men from the old guard that at least see things sees things that way. He was devastated after the Battle of the Bells. He was devastated after Rhaegar fell on the Trident and he's in exile and he spent a lot of his life looking back and and thinking terribly about how things went. Whether or not the Mad King his actions made it deserving for his entire dynasty to fall or to and to be sacked in the way that it was. I don't think that we have his true opinions on all that yet because mostly he just refers toward Rhaegar and his own personal connection to these things. There's a lot of talks of Blackfires, but it's just the mention of the the history of how the Golden Company was founded. He doesn't have a lot of personal insight on it, which is fine because, again, he seems like the kind of person that didn't really buy into that shit in the first place. And now he just wants his best friends or whatever Rhaegar was to him, son, who he believes is his son, to you know take over and he he promised he would help and so that's what he wants to do well and this brings up an interesting question that i was thinking about i mean of course as we're reading this chapter and as we've been reading these chapters we're thinking about whether or not young griff slash aegon is actually who he says he is and that can be a whole discussion but it makes me think a lot about how as you're talking about john's feelings towards rhaegar and the relationship that they had and, and all that kind of stuff um, and, and how he feels and kind of like this guilt that we're talking about that he, he carries with him if he he knows that Aegon is who he says he is or if that he just really wants him to be Aegon because he wants redemption and he's like looking for looking to kind of make up for all of this. You know, I think that that's kind of an interesting question because I feel like if anybody could be able to spot a fake, it would be him. Definitely. But at the same time, does he just want so badly for it to be true that he's going to kind of overlook things that maybe would be seemingly standing out to other people? I don't know. I just think it brings up an interesting conversation. Definitely. I think about what he sacrificed to join this mission. Basically, his entire reputation in a company of exiles, let that be said, but still, that's still, all he had. It, cared, it meant a lot to him. Was ruined. They, they told everyone that he stole their war chest, like their their main spoil of riches, and took off and eventually died, sadly. And the, the reason behind it was Varys said that, you know, we don't want any people singing songs of a, of a notable person that left and, you know, maybe tried for a different life, but didn't do it on negative terms. So they made a 
made up a story that would piss off all the people that do things for gold, which is that one of their fellow brothers went behind their back and stole the gold that they were making that was promised to them. So he sacrificed a lot, potentially, to join this mission. And we know that he so much so wants to be buried beside his father and his father's fathers and just really go home and not be part of this future that was made by someone else mm -hmm. so i don't know if he knows if it's real or not he seems like it's real he always refers to him as Rhaegar's son yeah he does i think it's i think it's interesting kind of knowing all that knowing how much this means to him knowing everything that kind of went in to get to this point knowing the the debate that they're having at the beginning of this chapter with lamore um about the motives and all that kind of stuff that they finally get to the golden company and he announces Aegon with all of his title, titles and grandeur, probably something he's been thinking about a lot as they've been plotting to work and he's just greeted by silence. Um, the guy pours his wine. He's like refilling his wine. Yeah, because they already knew. And so I could just imagine. I just thought that was kind of funny that you know, the buildup of all of this and then they already know. Like he doesn't even get his moment to kind of announce him and then Aegon eventually kind of steals that spotlight and says, you know, forget about Danny. But I kind of, uh, you kind of feel bad for John in this chapter, and like you said, it's really interesting and great and exciting for us to kind of get into his head and to get things from his perspective and to kind of understand his motivation for all of this and and why he's even participating in the first place. I wonder what is more respectable, his connection to what still is just plotting by someone like Illyrio and Varys. Or the guys that he sort of looks down upon that are dressed crazily in this tent. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, what's the more respectable path? I think it maybe we're supposed to believe that it's just equally foolish because all men must die. Right. He rides on the Shy Maid and they have this tent. I want to tell everybody, like I said, if you're not reading along, check this out. They have this tent. It's the commander's tent. And that's a pretty cool thing. Most camps have them. Well, first off, we got to go right back to the beginning of it when they're approaching the camp. How about that Arthur Dane shout out when he's yes. like, he's like, Arthur Dane would have liked this camp. <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> the camp is cool. They're three miles south of Atlantis. They've got, they've got trenches dug with, with spikes and spears. They've got all of their bathroom facilities plotted. They know where they're getting their water. They're pretty good at this. They're probably the best, right? Of the, of the free soldiers. I'm not sure. For sure. No, it might probably be. for sure. I think it's so funny how they're referring to Volantis. <laughs> they're like, we need to figure this out. And they might want to help us leave. Like, they might help pay for us to leave because the Volantines are getting real nervous about the fact that we're three miles from the city. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> but they're so ballsy, they don't even care. Anyway, back to the tent. Did you think the tent was cool? I did, but I are you going to continue describing it? <laughs> I don't know. I thought it'd be an interesting perspective. Like, what did you glean from the pages? <laughs> They just have they have the skulls of their of their once living commanders mm -hmm. decorating the, like on spears and stuff like Bittersteel's up there, his buddy Blackheart is up there, and then the OG commander who gave them the directions: "You must boil my head when I'm gone, dip it in gold." It's wild because we're the Golden Company after all. It adds like this grandeur of all of this, you know. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think it takes that for ten thousand mercenaries that are all logged in a certain way you know on paper <laughs> in, in, a, in an age of you know they don't have 
ID tags or GPS trackers, really anything could go down, but they have one leader, one council surrounding them. And um, it's very, it's very sort of like pirate-like, but on land, but they have 10,000 men. That, mm-hmm. that is nothing to look down on. That's pretty crazy. Well, and it's interesting knowing that there's other jobs out there for them that other people are trying to hire them. Oh, yeah, to snipe them from like, oh, that's so funny. Yeah, it's like get them to, to do their thing and to play all these different sides of of the game and what's happening. And that's why that's why they had to Harry or homeless Harry, as they describe <laughs> Harry Strickland, <laughs> had to tell everybody is because their their reputation is one that people know and understand. And so they want them to work for them. And the only way to kind of keep them around is to let them know well hey we got this bigger thing coming or we got the real deal yeah i mean we could sack marine which there's going to be we could join all the other companies that are being paid to do that or we could go toward the prize the one that we've tried and failed we could get westeros potentially Mm -hmm. they're like yeah well you know we'll think about it and then when they get that excellent speech from the young prince they're like all right this guy might be the king of the north as well this might work yeah i just it, grandeur is the only word I can think of as I've been thinking about this whole chapter, but you just kind of like feel all of that in this moment, which kind of like you can't help but think that maybe this is the real deal. A little bit, right? A little bit. And they're so, they're such a motley crew. They have a spy master who's just like, he's, George describes him in a way that a spy master of these of these guys would be. He's just different, mysterious in, in the right ways. They have a paymaster who's just, you can tell he's counting his money. And there's there's all these people that have a lot of rings on because they have a, a ring they get for a year of service and they're like covered in rings and just just leering. And uh, some of them aren't speaking. Some of them are just drinking ghosts and liars, revenants from forgotten wars, lost causes, failed rebellions, a brotherhood of the failed and the fallen, the disgraced, the disinherited. This is my army. This is our best hope. It's like the wall, like a ragtag. Mm hmm. Ragtag army. Or like Mance's army when John enters the tent and meets people like Faramir Sixkins and mm-hmm. see the kind of people that Mance has surrounded himself with. Yeah, it reminds me of all of that. And we really like John Connington at this point, or at least the the amount of honesty that he's put forward in this chapter and the way he thinks about forlornly, forlornly a, a more simpler time in Westeros. So we've got all these reasons to be like, at least this far in the reading, and I'm not sure where it goes, but to really be down for it, mm-hmm. to think this is a cool thing. This is a cool thing. I feel like my opinions on that have changed. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I've as with like a harder reread. Yeah, you know, I've I've talked about this a lot as I've reread about how rereading things like this, the weight and the gravity of them become more and more apparent um, because you better understand the movements that are happening. And I I think that this read around, I have more intensely understood the fact that Aegon, whether he is who he truly says he is or isn't, is a genuine threat to somebody like Daenerys and is a genuine candidate in a way that maybe has been dismissed or I dismissed before because I didn't want to add another character into the mix. You know what I mean? But I feel like it, it is a lot to ask. And even even when you're walking through this camp talking about Arthur Dane and Rhaegar and all of these great men, it's a lot to ask to put somebody like this in the mix. But you just kind of see that that somebody who has the same lineage that Danny has and somebody who is actually ready to go to Westeros and somebody who can then has has this 
you know, ragtag army of, of people to follow him can be a legitimate, genuine threat to somebody like Danny. Whether he says who he is or isn't is true, which I don't really think matters. I think that he'll be able to accomplish what he wants to accomplish without his true being proven true at this point. Young Aegon speaks to these tough men. He says, if my aunt wants Marine, she's welcome to it. I will claim the Iron Throne by myself with your swords and your allegiance. Move fast and strike hard and we can win some easy victories before the Lannisters even know that we have landed. That will bring others to our cause. And the crowd goes wild. They like crowd surf him. But they're like, why are we crowd surfing this guy's squire? <laughs> yeah. I feel like homeless Harry Strickland he was what he wanted to say was like you don't really have to be secret everyone knows man yeah yeah but i don't know also shout out to franklin flowers right everyone's names are just so good he's a cool guy i could tell george liked him a lot because he got some dollars ed style lines in this chapter so as long as i can kill some fossilways i'm for it mm-hmm. it's like the end of the movie all right well, that's why i said the council of elrond because it's like everyone got like their lord of the ring style shout out where like the reason why they would do it and like Franklin was like the hobbits. Like mm-hmm. he like his silliness, he represented the hobbits. Well, and to finally for John to see him after twelve years. Yeah. Like, like, every time you say John, I think of John. I know. Snow. Well, I don't <laughs> like, know what how else to <laughs> Right. I mean that's his name. <laughs> John, John Con John Connington, Griff. What's a girl to do? Franklin Flowers offered to take this so I mean, I don't want to go right to Owens. It's not like that. But I wanna say <laughs> I just wanna say this might be a or this might just be a reference, depending if anything comes after this. He, In my notes, I just put LOL again. He says, it says, Franklin Flowers offered to take the prince around the camp and introduce him to some of what he called the lads. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> the lads. <laughs> we'll start with the cooks. Good men to know. I mean, what more could, what more could, what more could you want? I know. Getting introduced to the whole squad. But are we supposed to like them or are we supposed to are we supposed to feel like we do like them, but it's folly that we do? I don't know. I think that's a big question. Is that, and as are all, like as the Golden Company comes to kneel before him, you know, how are we supposed to feel? I just, as I was saying, I don't think it matters if he, like, I don't know if it necessarily matters because I think that he may be able to mess things up just enough to give Danny a run for her money which I think maybe she needs like some sort of real rival for the throne um, and may kick her into high gear and wanting to get back to Westeros if that's what she really wants. And so whether or not we like him, whether or not he's real, whether or not what they do is successful or not, I think that there will be enough to kind of get the tide turning. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's kind of how, what I've been thinking. Meanwhile, Lord John Connington, he dreams of Griffin's roost and he, takes off his glove in dramatic fashion so listen i don't know why we made fun of it so much in the tv show (laughs) (laughs) he does he does take it off and he looks at his finger which maybe he just wanted to look at it but maybe that's what maybe that's what jora was doing too damn it i don't know (laughs) (laughs) i don't know either but he looks at it he has grayscale instead of jora because jora wasn't there and um that just means the clock is ticking. Mm-hmm. So so there's no waiting around anymore. He wants to be there. He wants to see Rhaegar's potential son risen to the Iron Throne. That's it. He hopes That's he can all. live long enough to see it. Yep. 
just needs to go see Sam in Old Town, though. Yeah, he can rip all of his skin off. Yeah, he'll flay him. It'll be great. It'll be awesome. So, owns Cersei 6. What do you got? Or Cersei. I don't know what I want to get my own and Cersei's thing, too. I think I want to, I want to change my own because I had something different, and then you pointed out the quip that Marjorie says about just ruling one kingdom when there's six of them. Harsh. Um, I think I'm going to give that give my own to that moment because that was pretty funny. That was a pretty good moment. I have two. Well, I have three. That's not good. <laughs> All right. Two, yes. Three. Th- this is this is to rewatch the thrones to blame for this. All right. So Tommen, he he got to name some of the ships, and I just want to just mention that he tried oh, he tried yes. to name one Moon Boy. <laughs> oh, and okay, Moon Boy is very good. First of all, that's a cool name for a ship. And then also how one of them is named Lord Tywin and Cersei looked forward to men hearing hearing men speak of her father as a she. That was good. That was awesome. There's uh, Queen Marjorie, Golden Rose, Lord Renly, Lady Elena, Princess Marcella. So cool shout outs. Tom is a good guy. So a couple of reasons why that's cool. I have to give my own to George R. Martin for this line, of which I just put a quote that says, oh, George, this is Cersei getting out of her litter. She's thinking about her, what she's wearing. If I had known I was going to have to walk, I would have dressed for it. <laughs> That's some dark foreshadowing there, George mm-hmm. R. Martin. Jeez. Especially with all those sparrows just right outside of the litter. Yeah, that's rough. All right. The Lost Lord. It officially goes to Franklin Flowers and all that he's done, but it unofficially goes to the line where homeless Harry Strickland <laughs> is telling his his little towel friend, well, first off, he's like, get the soft towel. That was a good one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, For his like, he, feet. <laughs> he's like, he he's around all of these people that we talked about, including John Connor has been gone forever and potentially a Targaryen, right? And he goes, think of them as small grapes. <laughs> think of them as tiny, thin skin grapes, lad. You know, you touch them. You don't wipe them. You just pat them dry. Yeah. <laughs> you should be gentle with those thin skin grapes. That's so funny. Oh, yeah. Um, What do I want to give my own to? I kind of just want to give my own to the name Homeless Harry because it makes me laugh, but I feel like that's not a good own. It's pretty good. Did it's you just, hear my own? It's, such a good, it's just such a good nickname. that uh, <laughs> Homeless Harry. It's really funny. It made me laugh every time I read it. So I'm just that's just my own, plain and simple. Harry Strickland being Homeless Harry. It's a good own. So those are our owns. We now have a collection of what you all have sent in on both Twitter and Facebook. Travis Cole writes to us. He says, for Cersei 6, my own goes to the hate inside Cersei, as it's what fuels her as a person, but also what blinds her. From the quote, this wretched priest will obey, or learn how weak and human he still is, to how she brings up her hate for Tyrion even as a baby again. Her hate undermines her ability to get things done the way her father would have had with a clear head. None more telling than when she thinks she played the High Septon better than Lord Tywin would have, but it turns out he actually played her. A bit full of herself, indeed. Special shout out to Ned for being mentioned multiple times in this chapter by the High Septon, and of course, Cersei's backhanded loyal fool comment. My own for the Lost Lord goes to Varys for his cunning being mentioned again, even to John Connington's disdain. Honorable mention to the dream callback to the Bells, the Stony Sept. The Battle of the Bells is extremely interesting to me for some reason. Me too, Travis. Can you imagine if you like, could see a flashback of that playing out? It'd be so cool. Spit off. Over on Twitter, we have from Rune Fair who said, Own to Tommen for bringing up the concept of Moon Boy, Terror of the Seas. Moon Boy. From Jen Calhoun. 
Owned to how the high sparrow is described for reminding me that a BuzzFeed quiz once told me he was my style inspiration. <laughs> Hashtag suppressed memory. And owned to John Con for giving such fascinating insight to characters we'll never get POVs from, like Arthur Dana Rigor. That's a, that's a good Definitely. one. Next, we have Brienne of Tarth, who says, owned to Cersei, who says, I have never looked upon you as a rival, not even for a moment. Oof. Also owned to Bittersteel for coming up with an amazing way to be remembered. When I die, guild me and cart me around too, please. From Amy Calhoun. The other Calhoun. Own for the Lost Lord to Rhaegar's parenthetical confirmed plot to overthrow his father. The mistrust can poison you, make you sour and fearful. King Aegon was one such. By the end, even Rhaegar saw that plain enough. And last but not least, at Heathen King says, Own to Jaehaerys the Own to Jaehaerys the Conciliator for being so conciliatory. Conciliating. Why did you do this to me? <laughs> that the crown would always protect and defend the faith. Hashtag conciliation. <laughs> I hate this. And then also, own to the many, many Blackfire references in the Lost Lord chapter. The First Rebellion, Bittersteel, Melees. I wonder if they mean anything. You're going to have to ask George. I don't know. Or Jeff. <laughs> yeah, ask George or, or Jeff. In a show or, I don't know. <laughs> All of our friends who are smarter than us. And it looks like we have one more tweet. We have one more tweet. Yes. My heart is full. We wanted to say congratulations to Davy Starks, who tweeted us a picture with him and his new baby girl. So thank you for sending us that tweet and congratulations. Davy's tweet last name is Starks, and my wife overruled Arya. So welcome, baby Ellen. Still didn't stop the hype train. Hashtag get hype. Hashtag 2K17. That's so yep. sweet. Oh, yeah. So congratulations. I wonder if it says hashtag 2K17 on her birth certificate. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Me but too. also, I hope so <laughs> at the same time. Um, so if you want to send in your owns, tweet us pictures of your newborn children, you can do that in a couple different ways. You can find us on Twitter at Game of Owns or on Facebook at Game of Owns or by sending us an email to contact at gameofowns.com. We appreciate all of your owns and feedback. And Halloween pictures. Yes. We love it. What were you for Halloween, Hannah? Um, I didn't really dress up this year. I hate to say. We talked about that all on Squadcast. We did. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> Squad of Ice and Fire. If you head over to patreon.com slash goo, you can support the show in a handful of different ways and uh, check out some extra stuff that we put out there as well. Thank you. Thank you. And also, if you want to keep up with us, we have been rewatching the series over on our other podcast, Rewatch the Throne. It's our not so new anymore show on Stitcher's lineup of premium programs. They're the coolest podcast network in the world. And we have 25 episodes of Rewatch the Throne. You can find it by heading to rewatchthethrone.com. And like I said, we just did Kiss by Fire. And so I think we're doing the climb next. Yeah, we're we deep th- into season three and it is some good stuff. It is really cool. And you haven't been able to talk about any of those episodes on a podcast. So it's like basically just another episode of this show. Yeah, it rocks. It's fun. We're having a lot of fun doing that. So to all of you who are listening, we need some ridiculous owns for next week. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, if you want to follow along with our reading order, if you want to read along with us and participate in that way, you can find our reading order at afeastwithdragons.com. And next time we're going to be reading The Windblown and The Reaver. Yeah. So. So, Yeah, we'll be (laughs) back with those two chapters next week. We're very excited. I just don't know how you say we're doing The Windblown and The Reaver next week. There's no Sam. There's no Cersei. You know what I mean? There's no Jamie. I know. This is going to be cool. It's going to be really exciting. These are always good chapters. So 
Um, you can find afeastwithdragons.com to catch up on the reading order or to read up with us for next week. And thank you all for listening. That's all. We'll see you soon. Goodbye. Before we leave, support for today's show comes from War Dragons, a mobile real-time strategy game where players directly control dragons to attack enemy bases. With over 150 different dragons to collect, players can join guilds to launch co-op attacks and co-op defense. We'd like to encourage you to join or create your own guild and make some friends while you do it. Because as we've learned, strength and numbers with those you trust. And don't forget, there's a new endgame feature called Atlas, which is a 3D persistent world where players can forge alliances with other teams and build up dragon-led armies, fight for new land, and secure lucrative rewards. So just go to wardragons.com slash OWNS via your phone or tablet device to download the game.